and welcome to Asia Unscripted. I'm Laura Husband, and this is the U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers who have firsthand knowledge of Asia. In this episode, I talk to Gregory Poling, director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, or AMTI, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. AMTI is an interactive, regularly updated source for information, analysis, and policy exchange on maritime security issues in Asia. It aims to promote transparency in the Indo-Pacific, to dissuade assertive behavior in conflict, and generate opportunities for cooperation and confidence building. In today's episode, Greg talks about the recent Philippine elections and the incoming Marcos administration. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. Welcome, everyone, and thank you, Mr. Poling, for taking the time to join us today. I'd like to start with a more general question to begin the conversation. Some have argued that President Marcos's policy platform lacked specifics during his campaign for the presidency. Is there any new information on the kinds of policies Marcos will implement upon his entrance to office? Well, thanks so much for having me. And you're absolutely right. It did lack specifics. And that's because he was running under an enormously big tent, right? He kind of, the banner was the unity, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a clever play on unity. And the best way to have unity is to not um, make too many specific promises. That way everybody can see what they want to see in your candidacy. So Marcos avoided the press. He avoided um, debate stages. He avoided specific answers on anything. But what we've seen, for the most part, is consistency. The cabinet is now completely filled out, almost, and it's full of technocrats and professionals. The new foreign affairs secretary is a lifetime diplomat, the first one to serve in that position for two decades. The uh, new secretary of national defense is the former armed forces chief of staff, who's quite close to the outgoing secretary of defense. And both of them are expected to, of course, continue to try to maintain the most cordial relations they can with China, but are invested in deepening the U.S.-Philippine alliance. Economic front, you get much the same. The economic team is now filled with competent technocrats, and the markets seem to be responding well to that. So whatever you might think of Marcos himself and whatever his personal opinions are, he surrounds himself with good people. You made some interesting points about Marcos's unity platform and his recent cabinet appointments. On the diplomatic front, what are the implications of Marcos's foreign policy priorities for the U.S.-Philippines alliance? The U.S.-Philippine alliance has made pretty remarkable progress over the last year plus, in which, you know, for most of the Duterte presidency, it looked like the alliance might not survive. And Duterte's dalliance with, with Beijing really fell apart on him, um, partially because China wouldn't stop misbehaving in the South China Sea, and partially because China never followed through with the grandiose promises of economic assistance. What we're seeing under uh, Marco so far is a continuation of that uh, turnaround that we saw over last year, where because Beijing had failed on its end of the bargain. Duterte began letting the bureaucracy do what they wanted to do, which was re 
uh, well, kind of repivot, move back to uh, the U.S., tighten the alliance, push China to arm's length, speak more publicly about what was going on in the South China Sea. Um, and there's every indication that that'll continue. This week was the six-year anniversary of the South China Sea arbitration ruling and the new Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Enrique Manalo, issued a statement that I think we all wish uh, the Secretary of Foreign Affairs had issued in 2016 when the award came out, calling for China to comply. So, um, of course, I expect there will be bumps in the road. There always are. Um, the U.S. can't control what the Philippines is going to do on every issue. And I have no doubt that Marcos is sincere when he says that he would like to find some kind of new modus vivendi with, with Beijing. I think probably every, just about every leader um, elected in every democracy in the world comes in believing that the previous guy just wasn't smart enough to find the big deal, and they are. And he'll likely find out that it's not that simple, that China doesn't actually want a deal. You mentioned that the new Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Enrique Manalo, issued a statement calling for China to comply with the 2016 arbitration ruling. On the other hand, President Marcos has said that the Philippines' relationship with China is, quote, very important and advantageous to both countries. Given this, how do you think that the Philippines' relationship with China will develop throughout Marcos's presidency? There's no doubt that the relationship with China is very important to the Philippines. The relationship mm-hmm. with China is very important to the United States and just about every other country in the world. So we shouldn't read too much into diplomatic niceties like that. China's stock of FDI, of foreign direct investment, is increasing, though it's still um, overall trails considerably behind Japan and the U.S. and Singapore and others. It's the largest trading partner in goods with the Philippines. It is an emerging uh, development partner, although still trails uh, Japan and, and the U.S. in particular. So it would be irresponsible for any new leader of the Philippines to come in and instantly say, we don't want anything to do with Beijing. The real question is, what is he saying about the U.S.? And so far, he's saying that the U.S. alliance is fundamental to the Philippine national interests. And every indication is that we're going to continue to see that deepening, which, if you're the Philippines, is your best leverage against China. Um, A close relationship with the U.S. is arguably your only leverage over China. And how do you think that the Philippines' relationships with the U.S. and China will change as a result of deepening strategic competition between the two countries? Every country is trying to do their best to carve out as much of a middle path as they can, as much autonomy, strategic autonomy as they can. But the Philippines is far, far closer to the U.S., both in military and political and security terms, and also in its people-to-people relations and public opinion. Um, and if you add in its relationships with Japan, Australia, and other U.S. allies, then it's overwhelmingly in the U.S. camp on most issues. That doesn't mean it wants to entirely isolate Beijing. It doesn't want to get dragged into issues that, that don't necessarily involve Philippine interests. But at the end of the day, the Philippines is a pro-American country. Its people are pro-American. That can't be taken for granted. But if the U.S. doesn't badly fumble the ball, there's no reason that that would change. And for the Philippines, if it wants to remain a U.S. treaty ally in an increasingly dangerous competitive space, it will have to begin making hard choices. The Philippines says that it wants a more equitable alliance. Well, an equitable alliance that involves the U.S. defense commitment to the Philippines means the Philippines must also be committed to helping defend American service members that come under attack in things like a Taiwan contingency. 
And that's a difficult conversation to have with the Philippines, but that's what a mature alliance is. It's what the U.S.-Japan alliance is and the U.S.-Iraq alliance and the U.S.-Australia and the U.S.-NATO alliance is. And if the Philippines is going to join that club, yes, it'll expect things of the Americans, but the Americans will also expect things of the Philippines that the Philippines hasn't had to provide in the past. And continuing to talk about U.S.-Philippine relations, Marcos has said that the Philippines is very much involved in the Indo-Pacific economic framework negotiations. In your view, how should the Philippines position itself in its participation in IPEF? And how can IPEF be designed to deepen the partnership between the Philippines and the U.S.? The Philippines was one of the first countries that came out and explicitly said that it was going to join the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, might have been just the third in Southeast Asia, I think, after Singapore and Thailand. That is because there is no cost to joining IPEF. There's no, it, it doesn't involve any actual trade negotiations because the U.S. isn't offering market access, so there's no market access you have to give in return. So why wouldn't you join it? I mean, it's potentially buckets of free money in infrastructure and supply chain resiliency. And the worst you have to do is listen to the Americans go on about labor rights for a while and then tell them no thank you. So of course, he, the Philippines eagerly joined it for the same reason a lot of other countries joined it. Now, if it actually turns into something valuable, it's going to be in one of two ways. And both of them are, are good for the Philippines. One, it could be a really valuable talk shop on particularly green infrastructure and supply chain resiliency. It could be kind of a, an APEC 2.0 on those issues in particular, except this time it'll have India in the room and it won't have China. And, uh, and, and in either case, there's no reason not to want to be there. Second, if the U.S. government is convinced by its uh, most important partners and allies in the region to separate out the digital economy as a different line of nego negotiation here, then that's a very attractive proposition for the Philippines. The Philippines already has a wide open digital economy. It's got a booming uh, business process outsourcing sector. Its digital economy is projected to more than double over the next few years. Getting um, a standards, uh, shared regulations on, on digital flows and privacy and data protections across the Indo-Pacific would be enormously valuable to Filipino businesses, just like it would to everybody else in the region. Um, so that's, that's the, the other best alternative. And if that happens, you're going to look at IPEF and you're going to say it might be weak and low standard, but it is demonstrably the largest economic bloc in the world. It has the Indians, the Americans, the Japanese. It's bigger than the RCEP or the CPTPP or any other regional bloc. Yeah, the point you just made about a separate line of negotiations about the digital economy is super interesting. And I agree that that would be really appealing for the Philippines as well. You also touched upon another potentially valuable aspect of IPEF for the Philippines in terms of discussions on green infrastructure and supply chain resiliency. The Philippines is highly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, particularly the increased frequency and severity of natural disasters. While President Marcos has indicated his interest in continuing former President Duterte's Build, Build, Build infrastructure initiative, what do you think is the scope for incorporating climate concerns in infrastructure development in the Philippines? I think the Philippines, like the rest of the region, is increasingly aware of its vulnerabilities to severe weather events. 
the Philippines, depending on, on what statistic you track, is always in the top five for most vulnerable countries to natural disasters driven by climate change. Um, the rate and, and strengths of typhoons hitting the islands over the last few years has just been, been stunning. Um, and so this is becoming a major concern, although as it is in the U.S. and elsewhere, it's often somewhat abstract to the, the man on the street. And, it, you know, if if you can get a new bridge or a new road that's going to cut your commute, are you really that worried about, you know, what it does to a mangrove forest that might stop storm surge in a hypothetical storm 10 years from now? Maybe not. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I will say that I see civil society in the Philippines being much more active on this issue, the environmental lobby being much more active and much more successful in getting local governments in particular to care about things like environmental impact assessments and um, environmental damage remediation, replanting of mangroves to help blunt storm surge, which is probably the most important thing you can do if you're the Philippines when it comes to the destructive power of storms. I don't see any reason that President Marcos wouldn't continue that, that effort, but he's not going to do it at the expense of much needed infrastructure. I definitely agree that the Philippines, like many other countries, has to balance infrastructure needs and environmental and climate considerations. In particular, energy infrastructure is front and center for climate change and development needs. One of the pillars of IPEF includes a commitment to clean energy and decarbonization. On the other hand, many countries are increasingly focusing on energy security at the expense of climate and environmental objectives, especially given the disruptions in the global energy market caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think the Philippines is facing a looming energy crisis? And if so, how do you think President Marcos will address a potential energy crisis in the Philippines? The Indo-Pacific Economic Framework doesn't actually commit anybody to anything yet. They haven't started negotiating. It does include a pillar on um, green energy, support for green energy and decarbonization, which will presumably take the form of U.S. and Japanese and maybe other developed nation support for new clean energy infrastructure, as well as negotiations about standards and the like in developing nations like the Philippines. And that's clearly valuable to everybody. I mean, the Philippines, like everybody else in the region, stood up in Glasgow at the last COP summit and made pledges for carbon neutrality in the coming decades, pledges that they are not on track to meet, um, neither of anybody else, to be fair, pretty much in the world. The Philippines faces a looming energy crisis, not because of Russia necessarily. The Philippines doesn't import a significant amount of its energy from Russia. Um, the Philippines faces a looming energy crisis largely because it gets something like 20 to 30 percent of its electricity generation for Luzon, the main island, which includes Manila, from a single natural gas field, uh, the Malampaya field off, offshore, which has seen pretty rapid declines in production and is probably going to shut down in the next three or four years. And they don't have any way to replace that. The goal was, um, by a lot of, of business people in the Philippines, to replace it with liquid natural gas imports, LNG. But everybody in the region is looking at LNG. And the problem is one of the knock-on effects of the Russia crisis is that now most of the LNG capacity that we would expect it to go to Asia is gonna to go to Europe. I mean, if the Philippines gets into a bidding war with Germany over LNG uh, contracts, the Philippines is gonna lose. So the biggest problem 
that IPEF could help solve on this front is getting the Americans in particular to recognize that there is no green energy decarbonization future in the Indo-Pacific that doesn't require American support to increase LNG production and to support LNG uh, power generation in the region. If we want to say that the only thing we'll fund or support is wind or solar, then we're basically telling countries that you have no choice but to turn to mostly coal, Chinese uh, funded coal plants in order to make up your shortfall. And that would ironically increase emissions. So our, our black or white approach to all hydrocarbons is actually pretty self-destructive. You mentioned that in order for the Indo-Pacific to transition to clean energy and decarbonize the economy, the U.S. will need to support LNG production and power generation in the region. What can the U.S. do to support the Philippines in its climate change adaptation and mitigation efforts? The U.S. can certainly help with technical capacity building, standard setting. Um, over the very long term, the U.S. can help with green energy production um, to help mitigate the, you know, ultimately the, the uh, effects of climate change, although a lot of this is now locked in. What the U.S. doesn't do and probably won't ever do is help build roads and bridges and railways in any substantial amount. The U.S. just doesn't do that. The, the U.S. government isn't set up to finance it in any meaningful way. U.S. companies aren't particularly competitive on this front. I mean, there's a reason that more than half of the contractors that get World Bank projects around the world are Chinese construction companies. Even when they're building at high standards under World Bank standards, Chinese companies win and Americans don't. The U.S. has advantages on things like the digital economy um, and some advantages on, on energy, but pretty much the rest of the physical infrastructure the U.S. has abandoned. So we've covered the Philippines' relationships with the U.S. and China extensively, and another important player in the region is ASEAN. Before we close, my last question is, what is the trajectory of the Philippines' relationships with ASEAN member states? Marcos has said all the right things about ASEAN centrality. I mean, everybody does. The U.S. says all the right things about ASEAN centrality, saying it's easy. The Philippines is a founding member. It'll remain invested as much as anybody probably in, in ASEAN, although historically the Philippines is often seen as a bit of an odd man out because of how close it is to the Americans. Um, the problem for the Philippines is that a lot of the most important issues to Philippine national interests are just not being taken up by ASEAN. ASEAN has cho either chosen or is incapable of dealing with most of the most important strategically significant issues of the day, whether that's the South China Sea, if you're the Philippines, or the Mekong River for mainland countries, or issues of technology competition, economic competition, what have you. Um, so there's, there's an increasingly small circle of things in which ASEAN centrality is meaningful, and the Philippines and everybody else invests in it. And then there's a, a growing ecosystem of issues that are just beyond the ken of ASEAN. And so we'll keep saying ASEAN centrality, but then we'll politely ignore ASEAN to work on those tougher issues. Well, those are all the questions I have for you today, but thank you so much for your time and for speaking with me. This has been a really interesting and insightful episode. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. 
You can find the USAsia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at USAsia Institute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute. This and all USAsia Institute podcasts are made possible in part by the support from Las Vegas Sands, Shein, FedEx, AIG, Walmart, Fairfield Maxwell, ConocoPhillips, and others.